right, Mike O'Bara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here, Matt. This is going to be so much fun. Mike, I don't think I ever told you this. So I actually found out about you when I was doing some Strava deep dives onto some different long runs and some different running routes in and around the central Rhode Island area. And all of a sudden your name was popping up on like all the Strava segments I was looking at. And then also I was looking at some race results for, it might have been, I can't remember which one it was, but I saw your name there too. I'm like, all right, I got to find out more about Michael Vera. So I started following you on Strava and you are like, the morning running du jour. Like I wake up and I'll check Strava. The one thing I know for sure is that you will have already completed your run. So I guess the first thing we'll talk about the chronological uh, order of like you getting into running and it's fairly recent. So it's fairly recently, especially for someone uh, of your ability. Um, but what's up with these early runs, man? Like you are crushing it. So I guess, first of all, how do you do it? And, and um, you know, just how do you schedule the time? Because it, uh, it really is something else because you're out there for a while too. I'll have to say one thing that really helps is a wife who likes to read. So she's perfectly happy climbing into bed early. I'm perfectly happy climbing into bed early. I'm falling asleep way before she is. And then I'm up and out early in the morning. Got it. So is this like, does work necessitate you waking up super early or what, 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 what causes, what's the chain of events that leads to you waking up at, I don't even know what time, what, 4 a.m.? What time do you get up? Well, I get up, it depends on the day, depends on the distance. Um, I think we'll get into this a bit more, but something we're going to talk about in a few minutes, will uh, that, that definitely leads into my early morning runs. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. Yeah, so it, it is a, a lot on the table, and I think what you're referencing, because uh, you're not just uh, a Masters athlete, you know, 47, year olds, 47 years old now, who's done amazing things running marathons, a lot of back-to-back marathons in your in your history. You've done some hundreds. Um, not only that, you are a runner that has type 1 diabetes. So this is something that we haven't talked. I don't think you might be the first person in like the six years of this show that I've had on the show that has type 1 diabetes. And that's something that I, that it has always been like a black hole, like not black hole, but like a missing part of the pod. I've always wanted to have someone on, um, who has, is working through that as someone, I think it was Adam Morrison from Gonzaga was like the basketball player who was you know, kind of famous for um, that aspect of his life. In addition to being like the college basketball player of the year, uh, his senior year at Gonzaga. So I guess, first of all, was this something that you were born with? No, actually um, I was playing division one college soccer. Um, I was a goalkeeper, a uh, backup goalkeeper at the university of Rhode Island. And um, I think it was my junior year um had no idea i didn't have any idea what diabetes was and then my junior year during the fall soccer season i lost about 25 pounds and i just found i was drinking all the time really really thirsty but i had no other health complaints and i happened to mention this to an aunt of mine who was a nurse and she said oh you should get checked out for diabetes it's really easy So I asked her about it and she said, you just go down to a university health services and they'll do a fasting blood glucose test. You just, you don't eat anything after midnight. You go into the office, they measure your blood sugar level with a finger prick. And then you go off, have some food, lots of carbohydrates, lots of sugar, and they come back and measure it again. So uh, I set up an appointment, talked to the doctor down at health services. And the woman said, oh, you know what? It's it's winter time. You have forced hot air in your house. It's, it's probably that. I wouldn't worry too much about it. So I did the test, and sure enough, I, I was a type 1 diabetic. Hold on. Do people often lose 25 pounds because of hot air? 
heaters? If so, uh, I need to install one in my house now. Like I, I was talking about easy know. way of dieting. We might have stumbled onto something right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's a great point. But yeah, there was it was a complete surprise to me. Um, no, nothing about diabetes in my family. No history. Um, no idea. It's it's an autoimmune disease, and it started right when I was twenty years old. Now, have you ever been given a reason for it starting up, or is this just this commonplace? Or like, obviously, you've been living with it now for over half your life. So, just what what is what do you think prompted the genesis of this whole thing? So, I really have no idea, and to the best of my knowledge, the medical community does not either. Now, I'll say right now, I am not a medical doctor, so uh, I. I live with diabetes, um, and what I've learned has come from doing all the things that I want to do with diabetes. So I, I know a great deal about it, but I'm going to say right now I don't know everything. Right. You definitely will. There's, there's one thing we do know for sure. You know a lot about your situation. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll dive into that. We can be, you know, an N of one kind of vibe right now. So when you were initially diagnosed, you're playing high-level college soccer. URI has a fantastic soccer program. You're playing goalie for them. How did it impact your daily life and your athletic life when you um, first got this diagnosis, and how did you handle it? So to be completely honest, that was 20-something years ago, and uh, I don't remember all the fine details, but um, one of the characteristics of diabetes is that it's not a hard transition from non-diabetic to diabetic. They have what they call a honeymoon period where you're slowly ramping down your ability to produce insulin. Uh, would it be a good time for me to give the listeners a, a quick overview of what it means to be a diabetic and what diabetes is? Absolutely. Okay. So <clears throat> in a non-diabetic person, the pancreas produces something called insulin. So you eat carbohydrates, the carbohydrates get converted to glucose, glucose goes into your bloodstream, and it sits there. Your body releases insulin. That insulin converts the glucose into a form that your muscles and the rest of your body can use. Now, because I was lacking this insulin, um, that was why my muscles were not getting the energy. I am told I felt lethargic, but I I wasn't really aware of that, Um, and that's why I lost the weight. So there are two main types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 used to be called juvenile onset diabetes, and type 2 used to be called adult onset diabetes. Uh, But really, type 1 and type 2 are the names that are used. So what I have is the less common form. uh, That's type 1. And that means that this insulin, my body produces zero of. So I make no insulin whatsoever. So anytime I eat carbohydrates, goes into my bloodstream, becomes glucose, and I need to take insulin. So the role of insulin is to take this, to take the glucose out of the bloodstream, feed it to the cells. Without that, my blood sugar spikes up. I have too much glucose in my bloodstream. I have no energy. So the way I deal with that is take insulin, brings my blood sugar down, I have energy, everything is good. Um, so I mentioned type 1. Type 2 diabetes is slightly different in that your body is still producing insulin, but for one of a number of reasons, it is not enough insulin. Um, there can be a lot of different reasons. You can be uh, insensitive to it. You can just simply have a pancreas that is, is failing to do what it needs to do. So that's the more common type. Um, The type of doctor that works with uh, diabetics is an endocrinologist. 
And I've worked with a number of endocrinologists over the years, and I have to say it's completely understandable to me that their focus or the focus of their practice is not um, athletic type 1 diabetics. Most of their time is spent with type 2s um, and a little bit of time with type 1s, and I would say hardly any time with athletic type 1 diabetics. Gotcha. When you say you take insulin, um, my mind immediately goes to the shots, but is that has that progressed over time or is that how it's always been? Yeah, that certainly has progressed. Uh, when I first started, um, I would take one shot every night and then another shot every time I ate a meal with carbohydrates in it. Um, that has changed, fortunately. Um, I just want to mention quickly the reason that I was taking two shots. Uh, I need insulin anytime I eat carbohydrates. I also need a slow uh, level of insulin delivered throughout the day, 24 hours a day, just to cover my background requirements. So your body is always, is always releasing glucose into the bloodstream. So you need a bolus of insulin every time you're eating carbohydrates and you need what they call a basal rate, so a slow, steady supply. Uh, when I was first diagnosed, the most common way to handle that was to have two different types of insulin. One you'd either take at night or take at night in the morning, and that would cover your background needs. And then a faster acting type of insulin that you take whenever you eat carbohydrates. So that's the way I started. And then I progressed to an insulin pump. Um, insulin pumps a small device, the size of a, page, a pager. Uh, if anyone out there still knows what a pager looks like, uh, it clips onto my belt and there's a tiny hose that goes into a little plastic tube that sits just beneath my skin and my abdomen. So progress from the needles to the pump. Uh, it's more convenient from the perspective of not having to whip out a needle in public places. Um, not, not the best thing to do in a crowded restaurant. So that was the next step. And then from there, um, oh, one thing I will say, so insulin brings blood sugar down, food brings blood sugar up. Well, in order to know where your sugar levels are, uh, you need to do a finger stick. Uh, you need to measure, you have a device called a glucometer where you take a drop of blood with a little finger pricker and sorry to use the medical terminology, finger pricker, and, uh, and it'll give you a number. So periodically you would measure the level of sugar and then you would take insulin to accommodate that. Um, so from the pump and glucometer stage, I progressed to a pump with what they call a CGM. Now CGM or continuous glucose monitoring systems have been in the news a lot lately, um, including in the athletic domain. Some seems to me that uh, scientists and, and uh, athletic trainers, they recognize that there may be some useful information in blood glucose levels during exercise and during eating. Uh, but my, my understanding is that nobody's really figured out how to make that useful. So anyway, and, so, and I'll just interject there. Some people may sure. have seen a very high profile case of this when, um, when Eli Kipchoge was wearing one underneath an arm sleeve. I think it was like his right or left arm. Um, actually, one of his two arms. Um, kind of like, yeah, exactly, right there. People don't have the video of this, but kind of from between the bicep and tricep, it looked like a hexagonal shape that was kind of sticking at the side of his arm. And it was in beneath an arm sleeve, but a lot of people noticed. They're like, hey, what is this thing? And that was, I think, a lot of people, especially in the running world, their introduction into the continuous glucose monitor. 
Sure. Right. So that's made a big difference for me. So I used to prick my finger and measure it four, five, six times a day. Now with this sensor, um, it gets attached to the back of my arm and every five minutes it transmits my blood glucose level to my insulin pump where I can look at a little graph and see how things are progressing over time. So that's been a huge change from how, where I initially started with two shots, two different types of insulin, uh, one at night and then a different type every time I ate. Got it. So, so many things to keep track of. That is for sure. So I, at the risk of like, I, cause right now I'm like trying to find the line between doing as much as we can about this topic, because it is very unique, but also to make it run centric as well. So let's just talk about like from an athletic performance perspective. Again, you were a college athlete, but people might not know this. We haven't introduced this part of the story yet. You really didn't start running until you were around 40 years old. So in that you know, that interim period, that 18 years post-college, pre-running, how did uh, type 1 diabetes in all of the, I guess, rigmarole, the rigmarole that comes with it, affect you as an athlete? Um, in terms of my athletics in that time period, uh, what I did, I did a lot of intramural, uh, intramural, I did a lot of recreational soccer. So played rec soccer, and typically it was as a goalkeeper, so that it didn't really affect me that much. Um, one of the things that I didn't really get into that I need to mention is just the relationship of the rate at which food brings your blood glucose up and at which insulin brings your blood glucose down. Now, those two things do not match well at all. Uh, something that I did not mention that's also pretty important is what happens when your blood glucose goes too high or too low. So when you hear about people having medical problems, diabetics having, I won't go into the gory details, but all sorts of medical problems, there are a number of bad things that can happen if you have elevated blood glucose levels for years and years and years. Uh, so when your blood glucose level is high, you feel kind of crappy. Um, you may feel like you have a sunburn, it's a hard time concentrating. Uh, it's just not a pleasant place to be, but there's little immediate danger unless you go significantly high in blood glucose level. So just on a day-to-day -day basis, you don't want to, you don't want your blood glucose levels to go too high because you don't feel good. Your body doesn't perform well. And in the long term, it's bad. Um, on the other end, low blood, low blood glucose levels, uh, if it goes too low, your brain says, nope, I'm done. Your brain needs a certain concentration of glucose in your blood in order to function. So if your blood glucose level dips too low, then you can lose consciousness. Worse things can happen if it goes lower than that. So those are the kind of two ends of the spectrum that really factor into any athletics. Um, what's the penalty for too high and what's the penalty for too low? Um, now, I previously alluded to the rate at which you can go up and down. So if my blood glucose is too low, I always carry some kind of candy with me, some glucose tablets. I can pop those in and 15 minutes, my blood glucose can be right where I want it to be. So bringing it up is not a problem. However, bringing it down is. So when I take insulin, um, even with the fast acting insulin I have in my pump, it's a good 30 minutes before it does anything. And then it continues to work for the next four or five hours. So it's a really slow 
process to bring your gl blood glucose down. Of all the challenging things about having diabetes and being in athletics, the most challenging is the fact that the insulin you take, uh, the effectiveness of the insulin you take varies drastically with exercise. So I count how many carbohydrates I eat. I have a ratio. That's how I know how much insulin to take. Well, that ratio works throughout the day. When I'm exercising, that ratio could be changing by a factor of three, four, five. So that means my insulin could be five times as effective when I'm exercising. And it's not just while I'm exercising, it could be also, it's, I mean, it's, it's also affected by exercise that I've done in the past hour, in the past three hours, in the past 24 hours. So there's a lot of variability with how much in how much work this insulin does. What that means is I can get myself into real trouble um, if I'm trying to take insulin to bring blood sugar down while I'm exercising. But what's even worse is if I have insulin in me that's still within the four or five hour time period, and then I start to exercise. So you previously asked about getting up early in the morning to run. Well, I have a nice steady supply of insulin throughout the night. I am not eating throughout the night. So when I wake up, the insulin in my body, the food in my body, it's at a very well known level, both of them. So I hit a nice equilibrium. That is a great time to run. So the way my blood sugar reacts when I run has very little to do with what happened before my run, just during my run. If I try to run at lunchtime and I've taken insulin, you know, two hours earlier, three hours earlier, then it can vary dramatically. And I always, I always carry a lot of sugar on me just in case. Uh, but so the answer to your question from earlier is from the diabetes perspective, it's much easier to run early in the morning. Um, also, you, you, you previously alluded to marathons and ultra marathons. The first hour, two hours, three hours of some athletic endeavor is the hardest to manage because you have the transient. You have maybe some insulin left in you. You, uh, you have food in you. You need to eat something before you run. So there's the transient effect for the first few hours. But then after that point, things kind of reach an equilibrium and, okay, my blood sugar is going a little high. I can take a little bit of insulin or it's going a little low. I can eat a little food. And that's much easier to deal with than huge jumps, like jumps from getting out of bed, then going and doing a short warm up before a race and then doing the race. So uh, that's one of the reasons why ultras appeal much. Hey, everybody, I want to give a shout out to John G, my favorite running apparel company. I love their shorts so much. They are so comfortable. I don't even realize they're on. No chafing whatsoever. In pockets galore for all the goos. And I wore their pants on my first ultra. They weren't even sponsoring the show at the time. I just love them so much. If you go to johnji.com, that's J-A-N-J-I. Dot com. You can use code rambling to save 15% on your order for the best attire in the world with a five-year guarantee. My goodness. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. So for your morning run, does that mean that you go out as a fasted runner? And obviously, like, your considerations here are not merely, like, 
nutritional based and you know something like i would consider right like my, my considerations for what i'm going to do pre-run are very different than, than your considerations not that there isn't some overlap especially on some of your longer days i'm assuming but you know when in terms of just like making sure that you can manage your day and your run and your body as well as possible does that mean that a fasted run is potentially preferable for you considering you know, the diabetes Absolutely. Fasted is always easier. And that's one of the big challenges I have with nutrition during any race is that it's always easier to eat less, to eat fewer carbs. Um, regardless of what's happening, fewer carbs are always easier. I, I made that mistake one time. I did a, a half Ironman and I decided I was going to eat to blood sugar, to eat to maintain my blood sugar level rather than eat for what I needed and then deal with insulin to accommodate the blood sugar level. And I got to a point where I, I, I couldn't even walk in the, uh, in the final half marathon at the end of that. Uh, so yeah, I made that mistake once. So uh, I, I like to say that I will eat what I know I should be eating and try to accommodate that by delivering insulin during the race, during the run. Um, but like I said, it's always easier to eat less. So when you're so when you're fueling your efforts, you're really basing on like, all right, I need to fuel my insulin or gluten glucose levels, not exactly like fueling the activity that I'm doing. Right? It's it's a completely different state of mind. Like, so if I'm you know getting ready to fuel, or let's say I'm a, I have a 20 mile long run, right? So I might be like, okay, I'm going to have you know the tailwind, you know, in in my um. In my bottle, I got you know 300 grams of carbohydrates in the bottle, and I got these different you know gels in my pack, and I want to get you know say 40 to 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour, and you know a couple hundred you know calories per hour for me. That's basing that you know those numbers are based on like all right the output that I'm you know creating in my body, the the calories that are needed to fuel that, as well as the carbohydrates that are needed to fuel that for you. This what I would obviously is not exactly the the math problem that you're going through. So it's one thing for especially um and this has been covered on a lot of podcasts. I'm not a registered dietitian. You mentioned before you're not a doctor. I'm not a dietitian. I do know, however, that fasted running that male athletes can get away with it. That and it's not advisable for female athletes, and there are hormonal reasons for this. With that said, obviously, if you're going out for a 45 minute to 70 minute run, you know fueling that is a little different than, Hey, I'm training for a marathon. So I got, you know, a long run on tap or I'm training for an ultra. And you just did a, a grueling ultra earlier this, earlier this summer. So what's it like? What are the differences? I should say, if like you had three buckets, like the, the easy run that's, you know, sub 80 minutes versus like the two to three hour long run that maybe has some spice to it in terms of, um, you know, the, 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 the pacing and throwing some up-tempo pacing versus like the four to seven hour, you know, feeling like all day, I'm going to be out there for a long time. I know this is kind of a long question, but I'd love to see like how you break those three, break those three down, or if there's a better way of categorizing those buckets, feel free to change those. Sure. Um, With the first bucket, uh, an easy run 45 minutes to, you know, an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Um, it really depends on the day. Some days I won't eat anything. Just like I said, it's easier. Uh, it's less risky, put it that way. So some days I won't eat anything. Um, anytime I am consuming carbohydrates, it's easier to accommodate it with insulin 
if I consume them more slowly. So one of the things that I will do on those shorter runs, if I do want to take something with me, I'll just carry a handheld with Tailwind or Gatorade, something like that in it. And then I'll just sip that throughout. So that's a lot easier to deal with. Um, but most of the time, short runs like that, I, I won't eat anything. I don't eat anything beforehand. Um, again, with something like this, repetition is my friend. Uh, I can't say that just because it worked one way yesterday, it'll work the same way today, tomorrow, the next day. It's, it's relatively close. Uh, but those are the times when I know that I'll need a gel, I'll say every 45 minutes or so. And in some cases, I can get away without taking extra insulin. Um, so I always have a background supply being delivered from my pump. It gets turned way down before I exercise. So I always have that supply. So if I'm working out hard enough, then that supply is enough to cover you know, a gel every 45 minutes. And oh, by the way, if we're in that case where it is enough to cover a gel every 45 minutes, that means if I don't have that gel, I'm gonna start dipping down and potentially get myself into trouble. Um, so so for those types of runs, yeah, I'd say it's it's pretty much the fueling that that we should all be going for. What's what's a nice number? 200 calories per hour, something like that. That's what I'll shoot for. And then the longer runs, uh, longer than two, three, four hours, like I said, I can kind of hit a, an equilibrium which really helps. And then I'll try for the 200 calories per hour. Sometimes I get lazy and don't quite get there, but that's- We've all been goal. there, Mike. We've all been there. <laughs> and then I just keep that going as long as I can. Gosh, you see, this is interesting because I would have assumed without the background knowledge, obviously, um, that these longer ultras would prevent, would provide, I should say, a much harder problem because you have to eat so much more on the run. And so dialing in all the variables therein would create the sort of like, all right, how am I managing this? And then like you mentioned, the insulin, uh, it becomes, you know, five, you know, five times potentially more effective on the run than it is at rest. So like managing that variable to the, the point of like, all right, with that said, I'm also taking in, um, you know, more food on the run the longer I, longer you longer you go obviously in order to fuel it um how does the type of products you use change either with like the intensity or the duration you mentioned the tailwind slash gatorade you mentioned the gels i also wondered like you know the basically these pure sugar or, i mean that that's not sugar but whether it's you know i think it's dextrose fructose malodextrin um these concoctions how do they play into um their effect on your body considering that it's basically like you know again just sucking down sugar it's not like there's mixed in like fiber into these things and you know they're not complex carbohydrates and, and things of that nature yeah I, I love the question but at this point i'm just trying to get enough calories in uh, like you mentioned <laughs> I, I'll, I'll do a, a long ultra and I'll be popping gels and then uh, an aid station will have peanut butter and jelly. I said, that looks great. Next one may have uh, an avocado and bean wrap. That looks great too. So, so honestly, I, I just worry about, I work on getting the calories. Um, there are so many different factors that go into my blood glucose level. Uh, that I just try to keep an eye on it. I make sure it's always a little higher than I would want it to be on a normal daily basis. 
and if it starts to drift too high, then I will take in corrective insulin in very, very small amounts. And when I say very small amounts, a, a typical meal I would eat at home, um, uh, as an aside, the insulin is measured in units called units, which is, is slightly annoying to me being an engineer. Uh, but uh, a typical meal, I will take five or six units of insulin to accommodate that. When I'm out in a run, um, in a race, and I'm correcting my blood sugar because it's too high, uh, I get scared if I take any more than two-tenths of a unit. So it's it's really, really, yeah. And, and I've noticed as I've progressed through the years of, of training, as I've gotten faster, as I've gotten fitter, um, the insulin, the difference between insulin effectiveness at rest and insulin effectiveness while I'm exercising has grown and grown. It's interesting. How does fitness play a part in that? Because I would have just assumed it was because of an elevated heart rate and the blood's pumping through the system faster. How does fitness play a part in how much insulin you need um, in regards to balancing um, the glucose levels in your body? I, that's a great question. I, I wonder if it has something to do with fat oxidation ability in your, I'm sorry, fat metabolism. Oh. What's, what's, the, what's the terminology yeah, I'm looking for? You're right. I, I think both, yeah. both apply in this case. Right. So I, I think that's part of it. I think your body just becomes more efficient as, as you become fitter at using this insulin. Now, with a, a non-diabetic, you've got a nice little control, uh, control feedback system going in your body. Uh, you eat food, your body senses it, it has the ability to release some very fast acting insulin, and it can do a really great job maintaining it. Uh, with my pump, it's, the insulin's effectiveness is much, much slower than a non-diabetic, um, and I have, to, I have to put it in externally. So it's, it goes right under your skin. It's, it's a much slower process, um, and I don't remember. Is that because that it's getting was. metabolized? As opposed to just going right into the blood system? Um, that is a fantastic question, and I don't know the answer to that. That's all right. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> I think I think we're going – that question might have been a little too far afield of the of the point of the conversation. But this is so interesting to me. As I don't know why I'm geeking out on this as much as I am, but it, re it really is fascinating. So what prompted you – to become a runner, obviously you're a good athlete. Division one soccer, even if you're a goalie, like that is an incredible endeavor, and you have to be so fit and such a good athlete to get to that level. What prompted you to get into running, and why did it take till you were roughly forty years old for that to happen? That's that's a great question. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think back to how it started, and and I know it all began for some reason. I asked my wife for a heart rate monitor for Christmas. Um, there was one I had seen. It went so on like your... before you were a runner. You were before asking for a heart a rate monitor, right? I and I. This is how. I, this is how do you know someone's an engineer? This is how. <laughs> this is how. I, I think at the time I may have been, periodically jogging, pushing my little kids in a stroller, so I asked her for a heart rate monitor. It was an optical one, went on your forearm, and it was great. So I got it, and I thought, hey, this is pretty neat. Um, let me see if I can find an app for my phone that works with this. So on the back of the heart rate monitor package, there was an app. It was called Endomundo. That is long gone now. But I used that, and I started recording my runs. I just, you know, I like to have the data, like most runners do, even though I wasn't really a runner yet at that point. And then I saw that the app had training programs for different distant, different race distances. 
So I said, well, I'm, instead of just running unstructured, I might as well pick something to shoot for. So I used some training plans and, and then it just, it went from there. Uh, at some point, um, I, I, I said, hey, you know what? A great goal to be, a great goal would be to run a marathon without any walking. So that was my goal. I said, I'm going to do a marathon. I'm going to do it without walking. And then I'm done with this running thing. Um, so turned 40 years old about two months after that. Can I just say, I, hold on, that is such an odd sure. goal for <laughs> a novice runner. Because you're like taking two things that are not diametrically opposed because there's plenty of people who have that same goal. I, I've had that same goal points. But it's different when like you build up all the mileage to be like, okay, the goal now is to not run. I want to finish marathon. It's different to be like a novice and be like, okay, I want to do this amazing thing run a marathon what an enormous challenge and goal but also i don't want to walk it i want to run it's just like it's such a funny construction and combination for someone who's new to the endeavor as opposed to like it's not it's not like it's not a crazy goal for someone who's going through the process and they're building up and they're like okay i think i can do this at 10 minute mile pace nine minute mile pace can i do it without walking like that's a, that's an understandable goal it is a unique goal for someone in your shoes at that at that point in your life Maybe it's a bit of undiagnosed OCD, but <laughs> I I wanted to be able to say I ran a marathon and not I did a marathon. And for some reason, that's what was important to me at the time. Right. So in my brain, I couldn't say I ran it if I walked. And you know I, better I know now, that's ridiculous. Though, especially as an ultra I, runner. I know, oh, ab, ab, as an ultra runner, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so so that was, that was my goal. So I signed up for a marathon and... Um, I still have the video recorded by my wife at about mile 17 of telling her how horrible I was feeling as I approached her as she was cheering for me with the rest of my family and how I was not going to make my goal. And then about a mile later, I, I, I stopped and I, I walked. So, so I did not achieve my goal at that point. And then like many runners, I got home and a couple hours later, I was looking for the marathon, uh, next marathon. And again, this was the end of October. I remember there were people wearing costumes in the marathon. And then I found one two weeks later and I signed up for it. Okay. I'm so glad we got to this because this is something going through your, and I know another way to know someone's an engineer is when they send you a spreadsheet of all their races. So you send me a spreadsheet of all your races, <laughs> color coordinated by distance, um, which is a classic. You know, I know my, my friend Carolyn Sue, she's gonna, if she's listening to this, and I'll tell her that she makes to make sure she does. Her husband's an engineer and does very similar things. Um, is your propensity to do these double header marathons back to back, whether they were planned or they are like in this case, kind of like a um a reaction to how the first marathon went, I guess in this case, what prompted you to do one so quickly thereafter? And also did this start the habit? Like I want, I want to explore like the, the zoomed in what happened in this case and then the zoom out of like, how did this become a habit? So, so I did, I signed up for the the marathon two weeks later. I really wanted to be done with this whole running thing. And I, I, I couldn't consider it, couldn't consider myself finished until I, I achieved my goal. So two weeks later, I ran another marathon and I successfully did the entire thing without any walking. So I was done. And let's see, that was November. Went through the whole winter. I'm not a runner. I'm done. I'm doing different things. 
and then I think it was sometime in February or March, I, I had to go down south for a trip for work. And there was some time in the evenings um, and I had nothing to do. So I decided to go out for a run and then that got me back into it. And then I signed up for another marathon. Uh, I don't quite remember the justification, but I'm sure I had a good one at the time. I would say there's not many 5Ks on the Google Sheet. No, there are not. So I, my thoughts on 5Ks, I want the race to last longer than the drive to get there, than the warm-up and the drive home. Well, then thank God you live in Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right yeah uh, 5ks really hurt they are very painful i would I, I feel much better going slower and going longer um I, I like to tell people the longer you go the slower you get to run and if that was the end of the story that would make a lot of sense but we both <laughs> know that these races gonna hurt a lot <laughs> For sure. There certainly is a different kind of pain as opposed to the 5K, which is the redlining experience. Maybe something you also experience in triathlon, where basically triathlon is all about like staying on that red line for as long as you possibly can. With that said, you definitely have embraced the endurance side of the sport. Whereas like even now looking at your um, your rate, the races you've run, you've done a couple of 10Ks, but really it's like 10 miles and up, which is is has kind of been your sweet spot and i will say you had some immediate success in terms of running quickly like you know sub four hours in the marathon a lot of sub a lot of sub 230s i'm sorry 330s as well um hovering around there um, after the first year or so doing 10 mile races you know sub 720 ish pace again and these were the Blessing of the Fleet 10-miler, which is a mm -hmm. brutal race. Uh, I talked about this in the podcast before. People don't know. It's the last Friday in July in Rhode Island. It's in Narragansett, which means it's super humid. It's really hot. It's exposed at various points in the course. And it's just crazy weather. Either it's super-duper hot and humid or it's a torrential rainstorm and there's nothing in between it's one of these two it's a great race it makes it sound awful it's a great race i was funny i was laughing about this i had um i don't know if you've seen this this uh strava extension called do me it's, it's like a dew point conversion extension so kind of like how the gap pace is like the elevation like all you know so say you've run eight minute miles i actually just said this on a podcast that came out right before this um so you run eight minute mile pace the gap pace might be 730 if it's a hilly run, right? So whereas like this dew point conversion chart has like, does the same thing, but for the weather. So say you run eight minute mile pace, but it's a 63 dew point and it's 80 degrees outside. It might say it's, hey, this is 715 pace if you adjust for the weather conditions. At this year's Blessing of the Fleet, which you and I both ran, it was like a minute taken off per mile conversion because it was so brutal. And that's like exactly how it is all the time. So with all of that being said, you had immediate success in terms of like you were running paces that people, if like if you just showed someone this sheet and it starts at roughly 2016, I think people would have assumed that, hey, that must just be when he started chronicling this because someone who runs these paces obviously was running prior to that. So what were you doing prior to your running journey that led to the kind of success that you've seen since then? Because it wasn't like you were starting from scratch. Um, 
that's a great question. I, I really wasn't doing much of anything, nothing structured anyways. Um, I was, I was dealing with two young kids. Um, so that maybe it's the dad strength. Uh, but there really was nothing, nothing. <laughs> I need more kids. I, I got to get stronger, I guess, <laughs> because you're running really well. All right. So I guess shoot, obviously the genetics are on your side and you're a fit guy and you're eating really well too. So it, it really is wild to see. Now you have done a, um, so you, we talked, I'm going to kind of stop myself here. We, I wanted to talk about like the micro decision, like, all right, you ran a marathon two weeks after a marathon, which is something that most people wouldn't do, but obviously it worked for you in that case. What about that experience led you to do that several more times, maybe like even a handful of times since then, where you have these races where roughly four to six weeks between one marathon and another. And it's not as if like one of them is completely on cruise control. A lot of the times for these are relatively similar kind of in that 315 to 335 zone. Uh, Honestly, I'm a numbers guy and I, I, I took, a, I take a lot of pride in my running and um, I take a pride in, I take pride in the, the distance I cover, the number of days I run, um, a lot of different aspects. And I, if I have to be honest, I think I saw an opportunity to run multiple marathons to get two more added to my marathon total in not that long a period of time with just enough between the two of them. So what have you done to make sure from a recovery perspective that you're ready to go for the second marathon? In addition to that, I guess automatically related to that is, are you going like full out in both or are you pacing yourself? Cause you know, it's a, it's a two for one kind of deal. I think I have one speed in marathons. In fact, I can only think of one marathon that I went into not trying to PR. Um, Earlier in our conversation, you talked about, you know, I, I was trying to remember what motivated me to, to keep going after I got back into running. And what it was, was the idea of getting to Boston. Um, I, I looked into the Boston qualification time. And um, as you get older, it gets a bit easier. So I looked at it and I thought, all right, I've either got to get faster or I've got to get older. So I did both. Um, so it was, doing it both was is a great answer to that question <laughs> so it was it was the boston marathon that motivated me to push through this um i i always figured the more racing uh the more training i did the better off i'd be i mean i know racing is a skill so the more you can practice the the better off you are yeah there's no question about that all right so what do you do between these races to make sure that you can give that, you know, striving for a PR type effort. And I guess I, that by that, I mean, you know, how much time do you take between each from a pure recovery perspective, the ramp up process, the ramp up, I mean, the ramp down, you know, like the, down the tapering, like they're almost like a retapering type of process uh, to ensure that you are potentially at your best for that second race. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could say I have something structured. I, I'm currently working with a running coach. Uh, in The first time I ever started working with a running coach was about a year and a half ago. So all those marathons, that was, that was all between me and whatever training plan I could find in a book or online. Uh, so I had some training books that talked about multiple marathoning, and they gave plans for Okay, if marathon one and marathon two are six weeks apart, eight weeks apart, 10 weeks apart, 
so in general, I would try to follow some sort of structured plan like that uh, when I didn't have a coach. Gotcha. And now you're working with Jason. Jason Schlarb now is your coach, and he is one of the best ultra runners in the country. He's fantastic. He's also a master's runner who's also like come back from ACL surgery that I think he got from skiing a couple years ago. It's a really interesting story. If you want to go learn about Jason Schlarb, he's been on a number of uh, trail and ultra running podcasts. An absolute fantastic, like all around athlete. That's for sure. What's it been like learning from him over the last year, year and a half? Oh, it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, it's it's great. We have daily interactions via Google Sheets. So I uh, will leave comments about my run. He'll reply. I'll leave funny comments about things I saw on the run. Um, it's there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of conversation, and uh, it's just it's it's a new way for me to train, and I, I find it to be very effective and a lot of fun too. Now, Jason is a extremely highly regarded ultra runner, one of the best ultra runners of his generation in the U.S. Was your decision to work with him because you wanted to start exploring ultras, or was it the other way around, where through Jason he kind of either prompted you, like knowingly or unknowingly, to start trying this out? So I went into this relationship looking to run ultras. So I had done some ultras. I, I got in touch with the, uh, the Some Work All Play running group, and I was directed to Jason. So that's how I ended up with him. But yes, I was, I was already, I was on my way in ultras before I found him as a coach. Now, was Anchored Down Ultra your first one? Uh, yes, I did a 12-hour Anchored Down Ultra, and I got to, I think, just shy of 60 miles in the 12 hours. So yes, that was, that was my first ultra. Um, I came back, my first hundred miler was, I think two years following that. Um, that was a 24 hour version and two and a half mile, actually 2.45 mile loops. So that meant 41 loops starts at 7 PM. You're done by the following 7 PM. Um, so I, was... I paced and, and uh, helped crew my buddy for the 12 hour this year, Ted Jordan, which Fantastic. was which was a fun endeavor for sure. I was there for like the last three and a half, three 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 and a half hours or so, and uh, actually my good friend Maurice Loman did the twenty four hour as well. So I was kind of hovering around him as well, uh, which was a good time. But that race is brutal. So again, you mentioned the distance. Again, it's roughly a two and a half mile loop with roughly a mile of trail, which is not up and down, but plenty of roots. Like you got to watch right. where you're going. It's roots all over the place. And then after that, it's roughly, um, you know, like a mile and a half or so on pavement around Cold State Park in Bristol, Rhode Island. But this is held in August in New England. It is, we mentioned before about blessing of the fleet 10 miler. Weather is not on your side. That's for sure. And especially if you're doing the 24 hour, because you mentioned they start this at 7 PM. So for the 12 hour group, you're running at night, you're running at most of your miles in the dark, which for some people, they might dread that. It certainly may not be ideal. However, the trade-off is, especially not ideal when you're in the, the trail section of this loop. The trade-off is, though, it's certainly much more temperate from a temperature perspective. However, the 24-hour crew are greeted with the last 12 hours of the run being in the middle of a New England summer along the water. It's super humid, and Bristol is always, the Coastal Park is always windy, especially where you're running. You're literally running along the seawall right there on in the harbor. So 
what about the 12 and then leading into the 24-hour race in a, in a race that is, I guess, not the most pristine ultra of the world. Again, not there's no elevation gain, but it's definitely a hard condition from a temperature perspective. What about that? Those two and those two experiences led you to want to continue down this ultra path. So the the 12 hour race, I can still remember coming up on 7 a.m., looking around and seeing the 24 hour people and thinking, oh, my God, they're not even half done yet. That's exactly I how thought, I felt this year. I, I, yeah. I, I was just pacing and I was like, oh, my God, these poor people. I felt so bad for them and I was so happy to be done. But uh, I signed up for the 24-hour race the following year. I I think this was a a check-in-the-box thing, my OCD brain again. And it was canceled due to COVID. They tried very hard to to rehouse it, to to move the race to somewhere else because there were problems with the park. Um, Didn't end up happening. So I got into the 24-hour version next year. And and I don't know if it's just a mindset thing, but 7 a.m. came, and I just remember thinking, oh, all right, well, we're cutting out half of the runners now. I, I, I did not have the same feelings or thoughts as I did nearing the end of the 12 hour, two years earlier. Um, so then I kept going through the day. I didn't have any pacers in the 24 hour, but I did have my family stopping by. I, as I was getting closer to the uh, 100 mile mark, I, I was doing the math in my head. Okay, I've got four hours left. I have to do so many laps. How slow can I go? So I, I did one lap walking the entire two and a half mile lap with my wife holding an umbrella over me. And that was fantastic. Uh, so that certainly helped on the hot day. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just the, the visual of it's hysterical because just I'm imagining someone not only like someone's probably envisioning themselves doing this, but you also have to factor in like the the ultra shuffle that's probably happening during all of this as well. That's it's not right. like you're looking like this. I mean, who knows? Maybe you were. I shouldn't project here. But I, <laughs> after seeing a lot of runners go through this, it's not as if you were like a super pristine and stoic runner during those during that the, the final two hours of your 24 hour race. So my wife commented that I looked a lot better than she expected me to. Hey. <laughs> either either she's a just a super supportive wife or a really good liar. As a physical therapist, she does not like seeing the carnage at the end of marathons. Oh, I or can imagine. Oh my so gosh. She really does not like that. So she had yeah, she was she was predicting doomsday scenarios when she came to to meet me. Now, how has running ultras impacted your marathoning and i say this as most people who listen to this aren't going to be running ultras right this is not a predominantly ultra focused podcast like I, i've done a couple ultras and we certainly have people who who do both and it's not like this complete polarization however you still run marathons so how has ultra training affected your marathon running your marathon training um either in general or for a specific race um i have to say i am I currently consider myself to be drifting away from the marathon, although I do most of my training on the roads. Um, I like marathons. Marathons, as compared to ultras, I don't know, maybe because I'm getting older, but I, I like to take it a bit easier on the runs. I mean, so I, I've done a lot of marathons. I think I've done 20 marathons, and I have a pace in my mind. I'm, and that's 20 marathons that, in seven years. 
for people who are, yes. you know, scoring at home. It's not 20 marathons over 20 years. That's a lot of marathons in a condensed period of time. Yeah, I, I find I put a lot of pressure on myself. Like I said, the only time I've ever done a marathon that I wasn't shooting for a PR was the first time I ran Boston. Uh, but after that, you know, there's there. I don't know. <laughs> I, I do find myself drifting from uh, from marath road marathons more toward the trails. I, I'm not by any means stepping away from marathons, but uh, it, it came time just a few weeks ago, came time. Do you sign up for Boston next year or do you do something different? So uh, one of my bucket list goals is to make it to Western States. So I found a Western States qualifying race that's either the same weekend as Boston or a week away uh, that I decided I would do instead of Boston. Wow, that's a big decision. That's interesting. So which, which race is it? It's uh, around Zion National Park. Oh, okay, is that part of the vacation races? It is. Gotcha. Yeah, it is. So I, I went looking on the uh, on the Western States qualifying list, and, and I found they had a 100-miler and a 100K uh, around Zion through vacation races. And I said, all right, I think this is it for me. There you go. I would love to do a promo right now, but they're not sponsoring the podcast anymore. They sponsored me for like nine months. So this would have been a great time to do the promo. <laughs> Instead, you can go buy some John G. Shorts, which is currently sponsoring the podcast. Use code RAMBLING to save 15% uh, on those. Um, little, little organic I have to say, I, I, got a, I got a John G. rain jacket. That saved my butt in my last ultra marathon. Fantastic. I love there you it. Go. See, I wore, I wore John G. pants for my first ultra. Uh, which was the Squash Apple 33 miler earlier this year. And let's talk about that one. So you know we got, we're kind of coming up on uh, on finishing time here on the pod. I want to talk about this one because this last ultra that you did was a distinct departure from all of the other races you've done. This is the Jigger Johnson 100. It was the 100 mile 100k. It was 100 mile. 100. And this was a brutal race up in New Hampshire. Again, every let me shoot. Any race can be brutal, that is for sure. But just from an elevation and ruggedness perspective, this was on a completely different level. We talked about the Anchor Down Ultra, the 12 and the 24 miler. That's you don't have to worry about any of the things you have to worry about in this race. Like that's hard. I'm not taking anything away from that. But this is a completely different experience. This is like I was to hear put in your words, not mine. But I guess first of all, what prompted you to try to take uh, or to tackle? something that was way outside what you've done before and what was the actual execution like at this race? So I was looking for another hundred, you know, I, I, I've done, I've done well before Jigger Johnson, I had done four and I saw that there was a race being hosted in the white mountains, an ultra. And I had not seen any of those. I had heard rumors that it's very, very difficult to get permits from the forest service. Um, but I saw a race that was being offered in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, and I thought, I got to do this. I've spent a lot of time hiking up there. I've done training runs on the, the Pemajawasset Loop, and I've done the Presidential Traverse several times. So I said, I've got to get myself up there to this race in the White Mountains. Uh, I saw 100 miles, uh, 32,000 feet of elevation, um, and what really scared me initially i think it was a 55 hour cutoff for people who are listening to this right now he says 30 you know roughly 30,000 feet of elevation gain for 100 miles that's as if you were running one mile and doing 300 feet of elevation gain but extrapolate that out for a 100 mile race it has a huge 
lift. Like if I do one mile with a 300 foot elevation gain, first of all, in Rhode Island, there's not many where you can find, you can't find hills like that very often. And you certainly can't find an extended run that has that elevation gain. That is a huge, huge lift. And it's the kind of mileage that is like, even for the, the greats of the sport would be something that would really test their mettle. So I just want to throw that out there because I know you're you're a humble guy. You would never say something like that, but I have to put that out just so people get a, a, hand, a just get a handle on exactly what those metrics mean. Right. Yeah. The other thing that really struck me when I did the math after the fact that's that's about six miles vertically. So I climbed a, six miles straight up throughout that race. Yeah. That's that, that was a big number. Previously, before that, the the biggest. The most elevation I had done in 100 was 20,000 feet. Got so 50% more. Even 20,000 feet is is a big deal. Right. So that was that was a rough race. Um, my goal was to complete it. I thought I could. I thought I could complete the race in 36 hours. Um, the final result was just a hair under 49 hours. Oh so my that was, god. That it, it was absolutely brutal. Did absolutely you sleep? Brutal. I did not. I did not. And the the other thing that didn't help was the first. I'd say the first six or seven hours it was raining, so I did not have dry feet after mile two for the entire forty nine hours. It it was brutal. It was a lot of elevation. It was tough trails. Um, in <laughs> The hardest part, so this was an out and back. You started in Waterville Valley, and then you went out to a place called a, a South Moat Trailhead. And there were four aid stations between those two points. So if you take those four aid stations and then that's the not many. point. That's so yeah, not nine, many. Nine total aid stations. The total mileage on my watch at the end was, <laughs> it was 113.13 miles, and my bib number was 13. So something's going on there. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, uh, there were not many aid stations. Um, and granted this was, this was not a fault of the race organizers. This was just the terrain. This is what they had to work with. So, um, getting from aid station four to five or five is the turnaround that took me about eight hours. Um, it was just, it was really tough when you're looking around, it's the middle of the night and you're not even at the halfway point yet. So, so that was hard. And, and it then, also means when the aid stations are that far apart from each other that you have to carry a lot. So you have to carry a ton of food and considering the, the weather conditions, also a ton of gear. Right. Yeah, that's right. Part of the permitting process, as part of the per permitting process, the Forest Service requires that every runner carry a, a, a list of equipment. So that was cold weather equipment. That was a certain amount of food. Um, we were required to carry a water filter with us because there was plenty of water on course, but um, eight hours from aid station four to five. And I, I was I was really hurt at that point. Aid station five to six took me almost 11 hours. So, yeah, it was between it was aid stations and between this, aid stations. And you're someone yeah, who's run. Like, it was brutal. for Boston several times. You're you're in a high level runner. It'd be like, oh, my God, that much time between aid stations is I mean, shoot, that's like as much. That's like if someone is doing high mileage weeks, they might spend eleven hours running in a week for a high mileage week, and this is what the amount of time between aid stations. Right, right. 
Um, yeah, and all that, I, I, I don't know how much you want to get into this, but the hallucinations were wild. Oh my God. Hallucinations, right. You got to yeah. give me at least they, one story. I mean, I get we're, okay. we're about to touch on the hour point now. I don't want to go too far over, but at, at least one hallucination story. Sure, sure. So I had heard runners talk about hallucinations and I, you know, I thought, you know, spiders crawling up your arms, pink elephants floating by. No, it was, it was nothing like that. Um, it was my brain's image recognition ability going wild. So I would see something and then my brain, I would see, you know, a few leaves in a pattern with some color in it. And my brain would see that as some little kid toy dump truck. Um, I would see people sitting on the side of the trail. I would see sheds off the side of the trail and you blink your eyes a few times and they're still there. When you get closer, the people would either just kind of disappear behind a tree or you'd see what it actually was. Uh, in, in one case, I was certain I saw a little white picket fence surrounding two orange traffic cones. When I got up to it, it was a couple of birch branches and three orange leaves. But my brain absolutely went wild with image recognition. And uh, one, of, one of the more striking things, there was a, an area, as I was getting closer to the end, where there were uh, many, many, maybe hundreds of stone steps put into the mountain. So as I'm coming down, I'm running down stone steps. And I would swear that every single step had something written on it, text carved into it. You know, different steps, there were different fonts, different sizes, different numbers of words. And whenever I stopped to read it, it would just disappear. But if I kept going, I would swear every single step had something written in it. It was absolutely wild. And I would see people sitting down on the side of the trail all over the place. And the coolest thing, I took a caffeinated gel at one point and most of it went away, but then it came back. Did the people recognition start to spook you? I can feel like I, I would not have handled that well. How did you handle um, that? It So it looked like, at first it just looked like every stump would look like a hiker sitting down on the side of the trail uh, with a backpack next to them. As I get closer, I realize it's that's not what it is. It's just a stump. Um, and then I would see people standing up, leaning against trees, and they would disappear as I got closer. But the strangest thing about the entire process was just realizing that at that point and with my lack of sleep i could not trust my eyes i could not trust what i saw and once you accept that uh, things get a lot easier just if something if i see something that is unlikely to be here it's probably not there what an unlikely what oh, unlikely what in a a crazy realization to come to in the middle of something where you're like all right i can't trust my eyes but i also have to navigate my way out of here that's right. That's right. Um, it was it was a, a fantastic experience. Um, I'm not going to do it again. But I'm really <laughs> glad I did. I mean, it was the the race was really organized well. Like I said, the aid station count was because that was that that was what they had to work with. Um, it was it was fantastic. And hey, the White Mountains, man. Like they, a lot of people have said, like people getting ready for European style ultra racing, UTMB and the like. There's not a lot of places in the U.S. that can mimic that sort of that those sorts of races in terms of their terrain, the ruggedness of the trail, and the pitch, steepness, and elevation of the route. However. The White Mountains is a pretty good replica of a lot of that. I mean, shoot, Katie Shy, Dartmouth grad, spent a lot of times, a lot of time 
mountaineering or you know backpacking through the white mountains and here she is now like maybe the second best female ultra runner in the world mike thank you so much for coming on the show today sharing so much about yourself and your experiences we really appreciate it it's been my pleasure it's nice talking to you matt